Welcome to the Food for Your Soul podcast, where we apply the Word of God to the hearts of men and women to stoke the fires of your delight in Christ. The Bible is full of promises that God will deliver you, right? God is our protector, He's our refuge, He's our shelter, He's our deliverer, our Savior. Psalm 50, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you. That's how it's supposed to work. But can you really count on that promise? In the day of trouble, you call on him and you beg God for help and he'll deliver you. If so, why are there so many times when you call out in the day of trouble and he doesn't deliver you? In fact, you beg God for help, things only get worse. We understand there's times when God has to say no to our request and allow a hardship to continue for various reasons, His purposes. We understand that. But so often it seems like that's the rule rather than just the exception, right? God said to call on Him in the day of trouble, He'd rescue us. But if He only answers that prayer, say, 10% of the time, how can we take comfort in the promise of deliverance? If we know that, well, chances are he'll say no this time. What does it mean exactly that God is our Savior, our Rescuer? In the crucifixion account, Mark is teaching us exactly who Jesus is. Um, In the trials, Mark said, here, let me introduce you to Jesus the prophet. Uh, Then, let me introduce you to Jesus the Messiah. Then, Jesus the Son of God. And then last week, it was Jesus the King, or last month. Jesus the King, remember that? Now we got one more. After Jesus is put up on the cross, Mark says, now let me introduce you to Jesus, the Savior, the Rescuer. And he's going to teach us some things about the concept of saving and uh, the difference between our concept of saving and God's concept of what saving means. We left off last time with Simon carrying the cross, which was a walking parable of what it looks like to be a Christian, right? Verse 22, they brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha. This is right after the verse about Simon carrying the cross. We left off right here. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. That's where you have to go if you're following Jesus, Golgotha. And uh, it's the place of the skull. And you don't need a Bible background encyclopedia to know what that means. Skulls are bad, right? That has to do with death. Pirates flew skull and crossbone flags to, as a symbol of terror. We use skulls and crossbones as, to warn about deadly poison, right? People use skull decorations on what holiday? Halloween, when, you're, when the objective is to scare everybody. No matter what century you're in, what culture you're in, it's a symbol of death. So they take Jesus to the skull and crossbones place. Place of death, execution, and for the Jew, the worst kind of uncleanness. Golgotha. And by the way, Golgotha, that's Aramaic. The Greek word is cranion. The Latin translation is Calvary. So... We use the Latin more than the Aramaic, I think because of our music, Calvary rhymes with way more words than Golgotha. (laughs) 
And Calvary Church sounds a little more inviting than Golgotha Church. But the word it's actually really isn't supposed to be an inviting word, right? It's supposed to be a scary word. I think Golgotha might be, we should go with that, because it should sound terrifying. The skull. And there's traditions of where Golgotha was. We, we, they're just traditions. We don't know where it was. All we know, it was, on, it was on a busy roadway, and it was outside the city gate. And Mark says, they led him out there, outside the gate. That's significant, because if you look up the phrase, outside the camp, that phrase appears 26 times just in Exodus through Deuteronomy. God gave lots and lots of regulations about how defiling things had to be taken outside the camp so that the living space of the people wouldn't be defiled. And all that was put into place ultimately to teach us something about Jesus. Hebrews 13.11, the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So again, we're back to this concept of disgrace. I mean, think of it. The Holy One himself has to be taken outside the city gates so that the city won't be defiled by him. He's about to become a corpse. The spotless Lamb of God, the only human being in history who could touch a leper, and instead of him being defiled, the leper becomes clean. The undefilable healer is about to become such a defiling contamination that he has to be taken outside the city limits lest he contaminate the whole city. What could be more disgraceful than that? That's worse than all the mockery. And as we saw modeled in the living parable of Simon carrying the cross, we're called to join him outside the camp. That's what Hebrews 13 is saying. Join Jesus in his humiliation. He bore our deserved shame, and in turn, we bear his undeserved shame. We no longer have to carry the guilt of past sin, but we do carry the humiliation and scorn that the world heaps on Jesus and those connected with Jesus. Verse 23, Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Wine flavored with myrrh is a delicacy. Uh, Mark doesn't say why they offered it. It's kind of a mystery, whether it was sympathetic bystanders trying to be nice or soldiers continuing their mockery, you know, here's wine fit for a king, you know, or whatever. Uh, Mark doesn't tell us the motive. What he does do is give us a verbal link to something Jesus had just said the night before in Mark 14, 25, where he said, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in where? The kingdom of God. Jesus will drink fine wine again after he's installed as king by God the Father. Refusing this, this drink at this point, is this is Jesus trusting the plan of God. He will be king soon enough. He'll be able to eat and drink like a king soon enough. He doesn't need any lame human imitation of it now. This is exactly what the Bible means by waiting on the Lord. 
This is what waiting on the Lord means. You wait however long it takes to get what God promised in God's timing and in God's way instead of settling for some cheap substitute. So they offer him this wine. He refuses it. And then we get the whole description of the actual crucifixion. The whole description in two Greek words. Verse 24, they crucified him. Those are the only words you're going to find about the actual nailing of Jesus to the cross. That's it. It's almost awkward how flat the reports of Jesus' crucifixion are. Zero descriptions, zero emotionalism, no description, just a passing reference. They crucified him. The Holy Spirit does not want, and you'll see the same thing in the other Gospels too. The Holy Spirit does not want us focusing on the physical part of the suffering. He wants us to focus on what matters most, which was the humiliation. We've been over that. And that keeps going in verse 14, where it says, They crucified him, dividing up his clothes. They cast lots to see what each would get. Now, the fact that they're fighting over his clothes means he's naked on the cross, displayed on a busy highway. When they're dividing up your clothes, that's always a bad sign. That means... uh, The implication, you won't be needing them anymore, right? It's just another way of rubbing it in. Your life is over. You're going nowhere from here except into the ground. If you uh, think about this in the context of Mark, it's interesting because this is the third time in the book of Mark that Jesus' clothes are mentioned. Two other times they're mentioned, his clothes are amazing, right? In chapter 6, everyone who touched his clothes was healed, right? They just touched his clothes, then they're healed. And at the transfiguration, remember what happened to his clothes there? They lit up and became too bright to even look at. They're shining like the sun. Amazing clothes. But here his clothes are just a pile of fabric scavenged by soldiers on the ground. Which shows us that the spectacular qualities of Jesus' clothes had nothing to do with Jesus' clothes, right? They had something to do with what? Jesus, right? They were his own intrinsic glory. The moment you take Jesus' clothes off him, They're just rags. They're just clothes. People who are into religious relics could learn from this. You know, if archaeologists could somehow dig up the robe Jesus wore, or a cup that Jesus drank from, or anything else, a splinter from the cross or whatever, it would mean nothing. Nothing. The glory is from Christ himself. We shouldn't be concerned about relics when we have access to Christ himself. And this is such a surreal scene. I mean, the most important event in all of human history is taking place right next to them, and they've got their back to that, and they're focused on some old clothes. They're like, oh, maybe I can get a free jacket. Missing the greatest event ever because of the smallest of trivia. Isn't that so often the story of our lives? How many really important things do we miss because we're caught up with our daily routines and temporal minutiae? It won't even matter in a month from now, in some cases. Well, this gambling for the clothes incident is a reference to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Very obvious reference to Psalm 22, 18. That's the first of several references in this chapter to Psalm 22. Uh, later, Jesus will quote Psalm 22 when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes out of Psalm 22 as well. 
and there's several other references to this in this account, Psalm 22. Mark paints the whole scene of the crucifixion in the lingo of Psalm 22. And that's important, but we're not going to get to it tonight. So just file that away. Just remember, he's, he's couching all this in Psalm 22 language, and next time we'll see why that is, why that's really important. Anyway, verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is halfway between sunrise and noon. Okay, So you can think 9 a.m. He goes up on the cross. And that's kind of interesting that Mark says that just because Mark never mentions time, the time of day. He's not like John, who, who typically does this. Mark never mentions the time of day in the whole gospel, but here he mentions the third hour. Then in verse 33, he mentions the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour, and then evening, which is the twelfth hour. And he already mentioned the beginning of the day, the sunrise. So why the sudden interest in the clock, Mark? I mean, did you get a new watch for your birthday or what's going on? Why suddenly you're talking about all these hours and telling us what time of day it is? Never mentions it any other time. And now it's, he's given constant time markers in exactly three-hour intervals all through this whole day. It's always a three-hour interval. What he's doing is he's showing us the events of the crucifixion unfolding like clockwork. The details of Jesus' sacrifice tick off one by one in a perfectly timed divine schedule. It's not just haphazard, random, out of control, sinners running unchecked. Everything is by divine appointment and plays exactly plays out exactly according to his plan. This kind of goes to what Jerry was talking about at dinner, about all this chaos that we see in our world right now. And if you could see it from heaven, you'd see, you'd see God's plan just ticking off like clockwork. Now, and it's not to say God is forcing anybody to act. On the human side, the crucifixion was carried out by evil people doing evil things who were culpable, fully culpable for these evil acts. And they, and they deserved divine wrath for what they did because they did it by their own free will. And yet God was still in control carrying out His purposes to the letter. And those two things are not at odds with each other. They go together. Acts 4.27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So there it is. They did what they decided to do. God was still controlling it. It was His plan. And one other quick reason why Mark may be repeating the word hour over and over in this chapter when he doesn't typically use that word, is to remind us that this is Jesus' hour, right? Remember when in Gethsemane we said, deliver me from this hour, may it pass from me if possible. And then when Judas came, he's like, the hour has come. And Mark's reminding us, okay, this is the hour of testing. The hour of testing, which we were warned about in the Olivet Discourse when he said, in that hour, um, you're going to be tested. I'm talking about the tribulation. So the hour is the hour of testing. So anyway, 9 a.m., they, they nailed Jesus to the cross. Then they scavenged for his clothes. And the next three hours, from 9 to noon, one thing happens. The whole three hours. A whole nother round of mockery. All the way down from here, all the way down to verse 33. Mockery. And you might be thinking, again? How many messages do we have to sit through about Jesus being mocked? I mean, gee whiz. If you're thinking that, don't look at me. 
This is talk to Mark. This is how he laid it out. This is what the Holy Spirit wants our attention to, to be on verse after verse after verse after verse when we read about the crucifixion. And it all starts with the sign over Jesus' head. Verse 26. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. That's Pilate mocking both Jesus and the Jews. And, but for Mark's purposes, it's just one more opportunity to, sh to teach us the truth about Jesus through irony, right? Irony, when the words spoken by the characters in the story have more meaning than the characters realize. Um, that's the correct charge. That's exactly why Jesus had to die. Not because he claimed to be the king of the Jews. He had to die because he actually was the king of the Jews. That's why Jesus had to die. The only way for the Jews and the rest of the world to be saved was for a king to come down and die for them. So once again, what's intended as mockery is, right, is the truth right on the nose. Jesus had to die because he was the king of the Jews. Verse 27, they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. So they set up these three crosses. And when they did that, I mean, they had no idea. They were setting up the most iconic scene of all human history, right? There's no symbol more instantly recognizable throughout the world than three crosses of Jesus in the middle, right? That's what they're setting up. They didn't know that they were doing it, but what they do know is that they're grouping Jesus in with evil men. That's what they're trying to do here. These, and they're not just robbers. They didn't crucify people for robbery. The, the Greek word can refer to a range of crimes. Even most capital crimes didn't get crucifixion. You had, to be crucified, you had to do something really, really bad. Jesus is lumped in with these, the worst of the worst criminals, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.12, which says, He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Part of bearing the sin of many required that Jesus suffer the indignity of being thought of, thought of as one of the really bad guys, one of the criminals. This would be like having your mug shot on TV, on national TV, right alongside two child molesters or something like that, or terrorists. And now everything, everybody thinks you're one of them, when in reality, you spent your whole life you know, rescuing children from abuse or something like that. Humiliation upon humiliation in the death of Jesus. And not only are the priests and all the guards and the Romans, the bystanders and everyone all mocking Jesus, even the criminals themselves get in on it. Down in verse 32, look at verse 32. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Now that's really something. When you're pressed down so low that even two criminals hanging naked on poles, dying for their crimes in front of everybody on a busy road, when, when even men like that are punching down on you, <laughs> you've hit rock bottom, right? You can't get any lower than those criminals in society, but somehow Jesus manages to get lower even than them. And so the mockery is just comprehensive. Everybody is mocking Jesus. Everybody. Jewish officials, temple police, guards, Pilate, Roman soldiers, random travelers, even the criminals next to him. Ridicule comes from absolutely every direction at Jesus. But there's something else that stands out about these criminals. And I noticed this when I was working on memory. You know when you memorize a passage of Scripture, sometimes things stand out that you don't notice when you're just reading it. And what stood out to me here was how wordy 
Mark gets at this point when he's describing this. Normally, Mark is very succinct. He says things just with an economy of words. You would expect Mark, in his typical language, to just say, Jesus is crucified between two criminals. right? And that would describe what would happen. And if he's between them, then obviously one would be on one side of him and one would be on the other side. But listen to how he spells it out. Verse 27, they crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. I mean, he's not even content to say one on each side. He has to spell it. One on his right, one on his left. What's the significance of right and left? When we think about that wording, does that ring any bells? The right and left hand of Christ. Mark 10.35, Then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in glory. And what did Jesus say? You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink? See, if you want to ride the coattails of Jesus' glory that we talked about last time, you have to first ride the coattails of his suffering and humiliation and death. And so these two criminals on the right and left, I think the reason Mark spells out right and left is because they're hanging there as another living parable. Just as Simon was a living parable of what it looks like to follow Jesus, the criminals are a living parable of what, it, what the path to greatness in the kingdom of God looks like. It's like Jesus could look at these criminals, look over at this guy, look over at this guy, and then say to James and John, do you still want to be on my right and left? Because this is what it will look like. It's a, the, the, the path to glory is a path of suffering first and humiliation first. All right, so let's back up uh, to verse 29. Look at the bystander's mockery. Verse 29, they sa it says, Those who passed by, or by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. And you, know, you can skip by that, but it, it's, it, it's, kinda, it's amazing how demeaning... That gesture can be when someone just shakes their head, you know, because shaking your head kind of means I can't even understand how stupid you are. Right? Isn't that what shaking your head means? It's like, like if you trip and fall and then the people laugh at you, that might just mean ah, that was funny to see. You know, I do it too, but I'm glad it wasn't me this time. That was funny. But if they shake their head and roll their eyes, it's like they're thinking, how is it even possible for someone to be that dumb or that clumsy, you know, or whatever? These people shook their heads at Jesus. It's like they couldn't comprehend how could somebody be so pathetic and ridiculous. And they're just like, oh, jeez. And that's another reference to Psalm 22, by the way. This is the, the first one was the, them gambling for his clothes in 22.18. This was from 22, verse 7. Which, where it says, all who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. And here's what they say. So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. They're shaking their heads. So the, the current temple that, they, that existed at the time had taken 46 years to build, and it still wasn't done. They're saying, you have so much miraculous power, you could do that in three days. You could build a temple in three days. Surely you have enough power to come down off the cross and save yourself, right? Seems logical. 
Uh, one problem with that, though, is that Jesus never actually said that he would tear down the temple, that he would destroy the temple. That was one of the unproven false accusations made against Jesus in the first trial, remember? And it, it never... It was never corroborated, and so they, he was never convicted of that. The charge they finally landed on was blasphemy, not that one. And yet that's the one that the crowds remembered, the temple one. And that's how false accusations very often are. Even after they're proven wrong, wrong people believe them. People continue to believe them. It's part of the unfairness of what Jesus went through. What did Jesus say about the temple? What he said was, you destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And the temple he's talking about was his body. He's saying, you people will destroy this temple of my body, and in three days I'll raise it up. And that's exactly what was happening right there. They're mocking him over a, pro a prophecy that he made that was being fulfilled while they're mocking him. They're in the process of destroying his temple. So he didn't say that, but on the other hand... Uh, he, even if Jesus didn't directly say that he would destroy the temple, he did say it would be destroyed, right? No stone will be no, left on another, uh, which sounded ridiculous at the time. But looking back now, which temple still stands? The Jewish building or Jesus and his church? His prophecy proved true at every point. But the main point here is they're mocking Jesus ability to be a savior. First they mocked him as a prophet, then as a king. Now they're mocking his ability to, to save because he can't even save himself. So the bystanders in verse 30 say, save yourself. And the priest in verse 31, he saved others, but he can't save himself. And then the two criminals say the same thing. It's all about Jesus' inability to save. Why are they focused on that? Well, Part of the reason they're focused on that is because they're trying to justify themselves. We know that because of verse 32. Look at the priests in verse 32. They say, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. See, they're saying, we would believe. Which means, if he came down, we would believe. Which means, uh, as long as he doesn't come down, we're justified in not believing. Isn't that what they're saying? It's important to them that they justify what they're doing because when you do something this wicked, no matter how far gone you are and how far you mess up your conscience, at some point, when you do something like this, like murder Jesus, at some point your conscience is going to have to act up at least a little bit, right? Some kind of nagging feelings of, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. You look at him being tortured, and you think, ah, I don't know if this is right. They had seen Jesus' kindness. They had seen him hold the children. They had seen his amazing, heard his amazing teaching. They had seen the miracles. You know, they must have had a few stray thoughts here and there, at least. About, Man, what if he really were from God, and I'm doing this to him? I'm spitting on him? So whenever conscience lights up like that, you have two options. You can let it do its job and bring you to repentance, or you can set your mind at ease by justifying yourself, justifying what you're doing. What if Jesus really is from God? <laughs> Can't be. Here, I'll prove it. Watch this. Hey, Jesus, if you're really the Son of God, come off the cross. And then you watch, and he doesn't come down. And you're like, <laughs> see, I knew he was a fraud. Even God is endorsing us 
endorsing our view because he's not saving this man. They're not operating on the assumption that, uh, I mean, they're operating on the assumption that God would never let this happen to his Messiah. God would never do that. And the Messiah would never allow something like this to happen to himself. The Messiah would never do that. Be very, very careful with the logic that says, I know X isn't true because God would never. Anytime you say, beware the phrase, God would never. You have to know someone awfully well to know everything that person would never do. And yet it's amazing how much confidence people have in their theories about what God would never do. Oh, God would never, you know. That's really the whole argument of atheists. Anytime you talk to an atheist, it's always, well, God would never create a world like this and allow this to happen and that to happen, and, and therefore, there's no God. They're willing to risk their eternal destiny on one line of reasoning as, as if a, a, a limited sinful creature could ever say with any certainty what an eternal, all-knowing, perfect being would or wouldn't do. And yet these atheists know God so well that they know exactly what he would never do, even though he doesn't exist. <laughs> so they're all heckling Jesus, telling him, you know, if you're really the Messiah, don't die on the cross. That's their message. Come down. If you're the Messiah, don't die on the cross. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? In Mark, where have we heard that before? Don't die on the cross. When Peter said that, who's... What did Jesus call him? Satan. Satan. This is the voice of Satan. That's been Satan's objective from the word go, right? From the very beginning, all of Jesus' temptations at the beginning, at the outset of his ministry, were all bypass suffering. Don't die on the cross. All the way through, all the way up to Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. Satan's doing everything he can to prevent Jesus from dying on the cross. Don't drink that cup, Jesus. Those songs that say that the powers of hell rejoiced when Jesus died on the cross, that's not, that's not true. They're wrong. Jesus dying on the cross is the absolute worst case scenario that Satan could even imagine. And Satan knew it. And he never gave up on trying to prevent it. Even after Jesus had already been nailed to the cross, the nails were there. He's hanging up there still. Satan doesn't give up hope. He, he knows Jesus has the power to put a stop to this and come off of that cross, and he's still trying to push him into doing it. The first round of mockery came from the Jewish leaders, and then the guards, then Pilate, then the Roman soldiers. This final round of mockery, who is it? Well, at first you say, well, it's the bystanders. But then it's the religious, religious leaders again. And then it's the two criminals. But... Really, it's just one. They're all speaking with one voice. They're all saying the same thing. And if you've been reading Mark, you know that voice by now. It's the voice of Satan. The final round of mockery is coming right from hell. And think about what they're asking Jesus to do. You know, it's not like they're just asking for a, a random miracle, you know, like the Pharisees earlier where they said, show us a sign from heaven or show, do, us, do this and we'll believe, do that. It's not just a random miracle. They're asking Jesus to repudiate the very core of his teaching about salvation. Look at the words they use. Verse 30, save yourself. 
Verse 31, he can't save himself. They want Jesus to save his life. What did Jesus say about saving your life? In chapter 8, verse 35, whoever wants to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for the gospel will save it. That's Jesus' message. There's just two paths that you can take. Try to save your life in this world or lose your life for the gospel. Those are the two paths you can take. Jesus' whole message was, don't take that first path, take the second path. That's his message. Don't try to save your life in this world. Lay it down, and only then will you gain true life, eternal life. Don't avoid the cross. Take up your cross. That's Jesus' message. That's been his message the whole time. And what they're saying to Jesus is, hey, if you want us to believe in you, then just, um, you know, we're not asking much. We're not asking much. We, all we ask is that you do the opposite of what you've been teaching this whole time. Give up on God's way. Embrace the way of the world. Don't take up your cross. Don't lay down your life. Get off the cross and save your life. Then we'll believe in you. That's what they're asking him to do. And to goad him into doing that, look at what the chief priests say. Verse 31. He saved others, but he can't save himself. That's really quite the dig, isn't it? And they don't even say it to Jesus. They say it among themselves. I think they didn't say it to Jesus. They might have been, they've seen, they've seen his miracles. They might have been a little afraid if they say it right to Jesus, he would come down off the cross and they'd be humiliated again. Anyway, when they say this, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Now we're back into the irony. Because once again, what they say as mockery ends up being a perfect description of exactly what's true. Is that true, that Jesus couldn't save himself? Yes. Yes. It's exactly right. Jesus couldn't save himself and others. He couldn't save himself and others. Not for lack of power. They thought it was because he lacked the power. No, he didn't lack the power. One exercise of Jesus' will at that cross would be splinters and all those people being laying dead on the road. They think Jesus lacks the power to rip those nails out of the cross. He could snap those like toothpicks with his divine power. It wasn't the nails that were holding him up there. It was his love. It was his commitment to drinking that cup. He, could, he, could, he had the power to save himself, but he couldn't save himself because if he did, humanity would be lost. That's why he couldn't save himself. He couldn't save himself because he, could, he, was, he would only do God's will. So at this point, Jesus could have spoken up and explained all that. He could have spoken up and said, okay, one more time. The only way to truly save your life is to lose it. We've been over this. Try to keep up. He could, I mean, he could have said, he doesn't. He, Jesus makes no effort to defend himself. He doesn't even want to get in the last word. He lets them have the last word. He's there to suffer humiliation. He doesn't do anything to mitigate that. He just lets it happen in full force. And when they keep telling him to save himself, what they feel, fail to realize is it was they, not him, who needed saving. The only hope for them to be saved was to believe. And they claimed they would believe if he just did what they said. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we might see and believe. We'll believe. If we see what we want to see, then we will see and believe. And God says, you can see and believe right now. 
But you need to believe what you're actually seeing, not what you would rather see. That's the, that's the point. You need, to, you need to believe what you're actually seeing. All of the evidence and proof they needed to believe was unfolding right in front of them. This is all the fulfillment of prophecy. All they need to do is see what they're seeing and believe. But instead, as the Son of God dies on the cross, fulfilling prophecy, they stand there and watch with eyes that see nothing. Of all the miracles they could have asked for, the one they claim would put them over the top, if you do this one more miracle, and then we'll believe. That'll put us over the top, then we'll believe. It's a relatively small time miracle, if you think about it. I mean, coming off the compared to like stilling the storm, compared to all this other stuff Jesus has done, raising the dead and all these amazing miracles, compared to that, coming off of the cross would have ranked, I think, among one of his least impressive acts of power. I mean, you could even imagine a super strong human being, regular, natural man, maybe doing that. Not that big of a miracle. But they claim they would believe if he would just do this that tiny miracle. But what Jesus is doing instead is the greatest miracle ever done. Reconciling sinful man to God. <laughs> That's what he's doing. He's in the middle of the greatest miracle ever. And they're saying, oh, why don't you do this tiny miracle instead? Staggering. But utterly unimpressive to them because reconciling sinful humanity to God it has to do with the big world. And they're not in the big world. They're in their little world. Is it true that they would believe if they saw Jesus come down from the cross? Ah, they'd believe all right. They would believe exactly what they already believed. That's what they would believe. And what is that? What did they already believe? What they believed was that this little here and now life is what matters most. And if it's a choice between our little here and now kingdom and the kingdom of God, that's easy. Our kingdom. That's what they believe. And what do they believe about greatness? What's the true path to greatness, according to what Jesus taught? Um, lay down your life, humble yourself, be a servant, forfeit everything in this world, including greatness in the eyes of men, and let God lift you up in His time. That's what Jesus taught. Did they believe that, or did they believe just seek greatness in the eyes of men and give no thought whatsoever to whether you have God's approval? Which one? Easy. Human greatness. That's what they believed. That's what they, that was their belief system. It's all about saving yourself. It's all about this world, not the kingdom of God. In their mind, the Messiah's job was to defeat Rome and give Israel her independence. That's the Messiah's job. Rescue Israel from Roman oppression. And so Jesus says, I'm the rescuer. And he's being crucified by the Romans? What kind of rescuer is that? To quote that famous theologian, Princess Leah, this is some rescue. Right? A messenger who can't even protect himself from Rome isn't much good for delivering the whole nation. And so when they say, Jesus, save yourself and we'll believe, what they're saying is, stop doing it your way, Jesus. Do it our way. Save yourself the way we would save ourselves if we had the power. Then we'll accept you as the leader of our little kingdom. That's what they mean by we'll believe. So yeah, they would believe what they already believed. What they don't believe is Jesus and his message. They saw all the miracles 
that he'd already done. They didn't deny those. They said they came from Satan, but they didn't deny the miracles. They saw the miracles. Didn't even put a dent in their unbelief. None of them. One more miracle wouldn't either. And we know that because when Jesus rises from the dead, that, not even that convinces them, right? And that's a far greater miracle than climbing down off a cross. All they did was bribe the soldiers when they found out the tomb was empty. If you think about it, really the only thing wrong with their statement is one word. In verse 32, the only thing wrong with what they say in verse 32 is one word. Now. The word now. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. That whole thing is great. Jesus would come down from the cross, right? He did come down from the cross, and God did rescue Jesus from the cross in a miraculous way, did he not? What they're asking for is exactly what God already had in mind to do. The only thing that was off was the word now. It was going to be in three days, not now. Now is not a demand we get to make when we're telling God whether or not we're going to believe. The insanity of telling God, now, do it this way, do it in this timing, God, or I won't believe. God, you do this, or I won't believe. That, the insanity of that is like going to your doctor, and the doctor says, I have medicine that will save your life. And you say, give it to me now, or give it to me in this form, not your way. And if you don't, I'm going to slit my throat. Well, the doctor's like... <laughs> Uh, why would you do that? Their refusal to believe doesn't hurt Jesus. It hurts them. It's suicide. Do this, God, or we're going to kill ourselves by not believing. How irrational is it to refuse the only thing that can save your life just because you don't get what you want right now? When God provides evidence for His Word, and people say, no, God, not that evidence. Give me some different evidence. You, know, so you hear this all the time. They, they just reject all the evidence we have. And they say, well, God should do something else. He should, I don't want a resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. I want you know, God to do something in the sky right now or to speak to me audibly. Or I, and if he doesn't, I refuse to believe. And what those people don't realize is God is not desperate to get them to believe. He's offering them a gift. And part of the gift is the form that God offers it in. And the timing, if it were in another form, it wouldn't be as great a gift. So when we say, I refuse, I refuse it in that form, God says, well, then you refuse it. And it's the unbeliever, not God, who loses. This final round of mockery, I think, really gets to the crux of the issue, which is salvation. Jesus as Savior. So back to my question at the beginning. When God came to the, save the human race, why did the human... Oh, I guess I didn't ask this. I meant to ask this. <laughs> so here it is for the first time. When God came to save the human race, why did the human race reject salvation? Why would that happen? That seems like the most unlikely storyline if you're creating a story of human history. That just seems bizarre. Why would somebody who's in deep trouble reject his rescuer? Well, it turns out human beings, no matter how much trouble we're in, can be very picky about how we want to be rescued. <laughs> Rescue us our way or not at all? 
That's kind of how we roll as human beings, both with big rescues and with little rescues. And that's how this applies to us. I think when you pray to God for help, what stipulations do you place on how God has to answer that prayer? It's not an easy question because most of the time the stipulations that we have are subconscious, right? We don't even realize they're there. We all have our own we always have our own ideas of what what the solutions to our problems would be. I've got this problem. I know exactly what the solution is. It's this. And so God, give me this. And and we think that's the solution. We ask God for that, and he gives us a different solution. Something we don't see as a solution. <laughs> right? He rescues us with something we don't see as rescuing. In fact, a lot of times we see it as another problem worse than the original problem. It's like when you go to the dentist and say, I know what I need, give me some narcotics for the pain, and he says, how about a root canal? (laughs) That's not what I had in mind, doc. Well, that's what you need. And if you want to get better, you need to change what you had in mind. (laughs) Why is it that so often when we cry out to God for help, it doesn't seem to come? Why does it seem like the answer to that prayer, God rescue me, only happens like 10% of the time? Could it be because the other 90% of the time, when we pray for deliverance, we have the wrong definition of deliverance? And so God delivers us, and we we miss it? Think about the last few times you prayed for help and didn't get it. Could it be that God rescued you in his way, and you didn't even notice? Jesus is the Savior, but he saves his way, not our way. His way is the way of laying down your life to save it. His way is forfeiting human approval to gain God's approval. Maybe we would do well when we pray for help to say, God, rescue me from this trouble, and Teach me what your rescuing really means, so when you do it, I'll see and believe. Or better yet, I'll believe that I might see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your deliverance. Thank you for the cross, the big deliverance. Thank you for all the little rescues, time and time again, even from a busted dryer. We thank you for everything in between. And we thank you for the times when you save us. And we think your your salvation is just another problem because we've created a minute definition of saving when you have a huge definition of saving. Conform us to your truth about what salvation really is in every circumstance of life. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Okay. Comments or questions? Yeah, I would. I mean, I would say, he says, I believe, you say you don't have a relationship with God. And he says, oh, I believe there's a God. That's like saying, do you personally know Joe Biden? And he says, oh, I believe there's a president. It's like, well, there's a, it's not exactly the same thing. <laughs> you know? I believe there's a president. I don't personally know him. I've never met him. He doesn't know me from Adam. There's no relationship there. Um, and so uh, 
I think if you, you know, if you just use human analogies like that of, of the difference between knowing about someone and actually having a relationship, and then not just having a relationship, but then the step beyond that, having a love relationship of acceptance and trust, um, where, you, where God says, I'm a doctor, and if you believe that, then you won't say, you're too full of shame and evil to come to me because that's like saying I'm too sick to go to the hospital. Um, if you believe the hospital is where they heal sick people, you're not going to say I'm too sick to go to the hospital. You say I'm going to go there because I'm so sick. And if you really trust what God says, and he says no matter how evil you are, that's, the whole, that's all the more reason why you need a relationship with me where you know me and I know you. Um, and... Um, you could even talk to him about this concept of being known by God, uh, which is an amazing thought. You know, God already knows everything there is to know about everyone, but to, the personal love relationship He does not have with everybody. You know, uh-huh. yeah, believing in someone it, it involves following that person. It's even used of Moses, where the people believed in Moses, meaning they followed him as their leader. And um, it's a, it, it involves devotion to that person and, um, and the allegiance to that person. And in the case of God, that would require trust and love. Okay, yeah, so when I, okay, so the great question. Question is, you know, I said a lot of times we, God answers our prayer, but we don't think He did because, um, because we, we don't have the right definition of what the answer, what an answer would be. But James says, no, oh, there's sometimes you flat out don't get what you asked for because you asked the wrong way. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because I didn't mean to imply that every one of our prayers for deliverance is always answered yes. There are some. So I used the 10%, 90%. I should have said 10%, 85%. And I thought about that, and I thought, oh, that's, that's going to be way too confusing. It's too much more. But, um, but yeah, the, so, so, yeah, so there's sometimes we say, God, make this dryer start functioning. And he makes the dryer start functioning, and we're just like, boom, there we go. <laughs> and there's those, those little 10%. And then there's this whole other, where it's like, um, save me from this trouble. And... He says, "Oh, okay, I'll save you," and he breaks the dishwasher too. And you know, you know, you don't put it together that that's that's how he's saving you from this, you know, because he's changing your attitudes or whatever he's doing. But then there's other times where, yeah, the answer is just no. There are times when we say, "God, rescue me from this," and he said, "No." Um, like when Jesus said, "Let this cup pass from me," and God said, "No." Um, so yeah, God does sometimes say no, and he has various reasons for saying no, and one of those reasons is when we ask the wrong way, when we ask with bad motives that we, for, to spend what we get on our pleasures and our desires instead of on God's purposes. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, back to the washer. So I, I've got this washer problem, and I say, God, deliver me from this problem. What I mean is, stop this inconvenience from happening in my life. But what he hears is the proper thing, which is he looks at that and he sees the spiritual dangers that are threatening me because of this trial. And he says, you know, the, the only way to deliver Daryl from those spiritual dangers is to break the dishwasher and make his transmission go out. 
And then that will force him to think this way and this way. And then he'll be protected from all these spiritual dangers of complaining and grumbling and not trusting me and, you know, whatever. And so he does all that. And a year from now, now I have greater faith and I'm trusting him and I'm not susceptible to the dangers. But if he hadn't done those other things, that washer thing, that dryer thing uh, could have chipped away at my faith and messed me up spiritually and caused all kinds of spiritual danger. And so he rescued me from that. And I, all I see is uh, inconvenience. I still have the inconvenience. I wasn't rescued. Yeah. Yeah, we, do, we, got, we need to be careful. We don't, want, we don't want to get to the point where we feel guilty for the times when we're not suffering. Um, because, because God loves to give us blessings, big blessings and small blessings, and He wants us to enjoy those blessings. And um, He sometimes gives prosperity, and He does that because He wants to enjoy it, us to enjoy it. So uh, I, we don't have to feel guilty about times when we're not suffering. Uh, the main thing is don't ever bypass suffering. Um, uh, don't ever fail to do God's will in order to bypass suffering. So if I can be comfortable, like if you're here in this room and you have a choice between a metal folding chair and a soft chair, then you don't say, well, I'm a Christian, suffering, metal folding chair. <laughs> or you can be like the Yost and sit on the floor or the stairs. Um, uh, we don't have to be that way. God doesn't want us to suffer just for the sake of suffering. But if there's only one soft chair and kindness, you know kindness is, okay, let so-and-so sit there and I'll take the less comfortable chair. Then in order, if you grab that comfortable chair, then you're saying, okay, I don't want to suffer and so I'm going to disobey God. Um, and, and that's where we have to concern ourselves with it. So it's, it, it's not that we seek out suffering. It's just that we must never let the threat of suffering cause us to deviate from following Christ. Yeah, so salvation is it's a huge concept in Scripture. Um, and when uh, the salvation that Jesus is purchasing on the cross is eternal life for us. And so um, it, it's a little bit like punching the ticket in the sense that um, Jesus was purchasing salvation. And when we have faith in Him, He grants us eternal life. Um, so somebody might call that a punching of the ticket in that sense. But, um, but yeah, there's so much more to salvation because when He saves me, He doesn't just give me eternal life. or He doesn't just say, when you die, you could go to heaven. He gives me eternal life. Eternal life is life from God, and that's here and now. That's a whole different kind of life here and now. It's a whole different way of living, a whole different way of existing. And it's a way of interacting with God and communing with God. And so it's not just what happens to me when I die. It's what happens to me right now. It's a way of viewing life and navigating through this world through uh, looking at things through a kingdom lens, an eternal perspective. Um, and that, that's salvation from the empty way of life we used to have, Peter calls it, before we were saved. Um, and so... We're rescued from a host of things. We're rescued from that empty way of life. We're rescued from living for ourselves. We're rescued from sin and the consequences of sin. We're rescued from God's wrath. We're rescued from unbelief. We're rescued from um, all the sorrow that comes from not being close to fellowship with God. You know, just the list is endless.
If there, if new believers aren't being added to our fellowship daily, is something wrong? I don't know if I would say that something's necessarily wrong if there's not new people added daily, because um, in that context, in Acts two, first of all, you're t- it's the very beginning of the church, and so everybody whose heart is already open to God, as soon as they hear the message, is are going to come to Christ, and none of them had ever heard the message before. Whereas we live in a culture where Thousands of people have heard the message all their lives, and um, the ones who were, you know, who had an open heart to God have already, um, many of them have already responded. And so you wouldn't expect the same percentage of respondents, number one. Number two, this is the whole nation of Israel, whereas your fellowship, I mean, this fellowship, that would be a pretty tall order to add new believers every single day to this group of a dozen people. <laughs> um, if it's a church of 10,000, then maybe you would expect uh, more than 365 new per day. Uh, and so, you know, it kind of depends on what size group you're talking about and, and all that, what, what country you live in and how much gospel saturation there is. And, um, you know, you go to some countries where a large number of the people, as soon as you tell them the gospel, they, rep- they respond. And then there's other places where they've been gospel-hardened because they've heard the gospel lingo so much, they think they know it. And you get a guy like Bill was talking about where you give him the whole gospel and they, he just says, yeah, I believe in God. And it's like, you know, there's no... He's inoculated to the lingo to the point where it, it won't even penetrate his brain, you know. So... I think we would we definitely want to see churches should be adding to the number of new believers on a regular basis. But I don't know I wouldn't I don't think I don't know if I'd go so far as to say every church should see new conversions every day. Yeah, you never know. I don't know what you know I um if somebody if you see someone and they just never seem to have any problems, everything's wonderful and it always has been. There's so many different possibilities. One is that um, they, uh, they're not walking with the Lord, and so Satan is going out of his way to make sure not to rock the boat. you know. But another possibility is maybe they really are walking with the Lord, and they're suffering stuff that if you and I suffered it, we, it would put us flat on our back. But they're so focused on Christ that it doesn't even phase them, and they don't even remember it as a trial because they're so strong spiritually. So, yeah, who knows? You know, who knows what to, what to make of that? But yeah, that hedge of protection thing. I think we, you know, people pray for a hedge of protection, and so often that's they're asking for little salvation. Not big. I mean, they're asking for like, don't let me get hurt, don't let me get in a car crash, hedge of protection. Don't let me get in a car crash. And they, it's like, wait a second, is there more spiritual danger when you get in a car crash than when you don't get in a car crash? What if there's more spiritual risk not getting in a car crash? Then it's better to get in the car crash, right? That's why I like the driver. <laughs> <laughs> and what you can't see is that you get these spiritual dangers. You know, you got you got demons pulling that bow, ready to let it let it fly, and you're just about to sustain a major spiritual injury. And God steps in at the last second, busts the driver dryer, and deflects that arrow. And that's the very thing that saves you from spiritual harm. 
Uh, so the question is, if we're praying for protection against some physical threat, could we be short-circuiting what God is going to do and putting ourselves at, at risk? It's possible, but thankfully what we can do is say, God, um, please don't let this hardship happen to me. Nevertheless, your will be done, not my will. And therefore, and then we can trust God that he'll let this, let me bypass this hardship if it can fit into his will, which would be nice. But if it can't, then I'll suffer the hardship because that's what's best. That's good too. So you can't lose. Yeah, and you can, I mean, you can ask God for all kinds of things, but it's good to ask God, Lord, do this for me. Here's why. Here's why I'm asking this. I've, I get, I've gotten in the habit of doing that. Lord, I'm asking for this, and here's why. And if I say, Lord, let me get over this cold because, and if my because is just, oh, I'm just sick and tired of this cold. It's not that much of a reason. Um, but if it has to do with the kingdom, it's like, what does this have to do with the kingdom? Could I serve the kingdom better without this cold? I think I could. I could, I think I could. I could study better. I think I could. Lord, for the sake of, and I start thinking about all of you, and I think, you know, for the sake of the people who listen to me teach, let me be able to just focus on studying and not be bogged down by this cold. Now I've got a kingdom reason to ask for this thing I'm asking for, and um, I feel a little better asking for it. Now once in a while, like last week, or two weeks ago, whatever, I got so sick, I couldn't think straight. I was in the middle of the night. I was so miserable. I said, God, I can't take this for another second. Please, I don't, I don't have any reason to ask for this other than I can't take this another second. <laughs> Please just make it stop. You know? So, I mean, sometimes you can't necessarily. But I try to, uh, there's been times when I've been in pain and I said, you know what, God? Um, I'm just not going to ask for relief from it right now. That's not really what my biggest desire is right now. I, here's my biggest desire, you know. It's still, it's still instructive to your soul. Yeah, you can still. I mean, you're right. It's, it's. We can, uh, we can, sometimes con ourselves into thinking it's a kingdom purpose, and really we're just sick and tired of having this cold. But it's okay to have dual motives. It's, but it's good to, you know, that practice has been good for me because it trains me to think in kingdom perspectives. Well, you can. Am I sinning? No. No, I don't think so. I think you can say, you know, you could say, God, I want to be able to do more. I want to be able to do some things that I can't do with these health problems. I want to be able to do them for your name sake. Will you grant me health? And his answer might be yes, or his answer might be no. But his answer, if his answer is no, you know what he'll also say? He'll say the same thing to you that he said to David when David wanted to build the temple. It was good of you to have this in your heart. You want to do, you want to do all this stuff for my kingdom? Answer is no, but it was good of you to want to do that. And he'll be honored and pleased just by you praying the prayer. Even though the answer has to be no. So no, it's not bad. It's good. Thank you for listening. We pray these principles from the Word of God are helping you find the peace of God as you draw near to the God of peace. Please remember to pray for this ministry, and remember that we're a crowd-funded ministry, so every gift helps. Just go to treasuringgod.com. Until next time, rejoice in the Lord always, and set your mind on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God.